0: Verse 26, Matthew 16. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. And verily I say unto you there, be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And after six days Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John his brother and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart and was transfigured before them and his face did shine as the sun and his raiment was white as light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man till the Son of Man be risen from the dead. Let's bow our heads. Father, we want to thank you again and again and again for preserving thy word for us. And here we've read another very precious portion, such a rich, rich portion of thy word. We ask you to bless it to our hearts tonight that we'll learn more about our Lord Jesus Christ More about redemption, more about eternity, more about so many things, including the resurrected body. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. I had thought I was going to cover this particular verse, verse 26, last week. So the tape from last week has that title on it, you know, What Shall a Man Gain? He loses his own soul, something like that. And I didn't get to it, but I told Dixie, and she makes my labels. I said, no, leave it, go. We'll cover it, and we'll go on, and we'll make the next one. The next one would be called uh, Christ, Moses, and Elijah, because I knew I was going to get there. But this, this particular verse in the Bible, I don't know how anybody could read it, without really hesitating, stopping and thinking, giving it some thought. Now, so many, many times I've briefly talked about this verse. Our Lord doesn't start at the bottom of the ladder on this one at all. You don't work up here. He says, what if a man gained the whole world? We're usually happy if we gain a little piece of property to put a house on or a trailer or to put a garage on, to put our car in, the little bitty bits of things that we own and take pride in and take possessive pride in our little bit of the world. I sometimes think, why do we care about any piece of property, no matter how small it is or how big it is, as long as it's sitting right on top of hell? Now, you know that hell is in the center of this earth. The center of this earth is a burning, burning furnace. So in the basement of all of our properties, no matter who owns it where, there's a big fire in the basement. Now, You can own all of that. Those that own a lot of property in this world end up in the basement. They end up in hell awaiting the day of judgment. Now, the Jehovah Witnesses have a great big problem with that. They can't understand how a soul can exist in a fire. That bothers them. Well, it don't bother me, because I just believe it. I can't figure it out. Now, didn't we just sing with Brother Hale that there were three young men, Hebrew young men, thrown into Nebuchadnezzar's furnace, That was so hot. The flames were so hot. It was burning so vigorously that the men that threw these three young men in died. Some of the gallant soldiers of Nebuchadnezzar's army died getting that close trying to get these guys in. Fire never bothered them. Here's a a case where it didn't bother bodies. Bodies of flesh and blood, because the Lord preserved them. Now, why worry about a soul that our Lord says can't be destroyed and can burn forever and ever without being destroyed? We had a bush that Moses saw burning, burning furiously, and it was not consumed. Lord says, take off your shoes, Moses, you're on holy ground, because the Lord was there. So what has a man profited if he gained the whole world? Not just your subdivision, not just your town, not even your parish. People in the tape families don't recognize parish. They're going to hear their county or the state or the country. No, they still haven't got high enough. You could own all of the United States, everything in it, power over everybody, but you're still not owning the world. Our Lord started at the top. If you gain the whole world, and let's add something to that. Say if every river in the world flowed with liquid gold and you owned it. And all the mountains in the world were nothing but wonderful heaps of precious jewels. And you owned it. And you lost your soul. When you quit breathing, the jewels, the gold, the power, the pleasure, the wealth, whatever, does you absolutely nothing and your soul goes to hell awaiting judgment to be cast into the lake of fire to burn forever and ever. Kind of serious, isn't it? How many people take it serious? You hardly know any apart from the assembly that we have here. People don't take God's word serious, but it is. Oh ho. Everyone that God saves, before he ever saves them, they tremble when they think of this. They tremble and they come begging like a beggar to the feet of Christ. What shall a man be profited if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Lose your soul, how do you keep it? you keep it by coming to the Lord Jesus Christ who gives that soul eternal life. How can he do that? Well, for one thing, he's God, and for another thing, he's man. He's God and man in one. And when he became man, he lived here in a time when things were terrible upon this earth. Terrible, terrible. The very country he was born in was occupied by an enemy army. The Roman army occupied the whole land of Israel and they could do whatever they wanted to do. And why I say that is because when one of the kings gave his soldiers command to kill all the, the boy babies two years old and under, they did. They went into every home searching for little baby boys and killed them. Now, is that a terrible time of occupation of a country? That's when our Lord was born. Our Lord Jesus Christ not only was born in bad times, The law of God was in effect. They had sacrifices, animal sacrifices at the time. And the law that said, the soul that sinneth, it shall die, he was under that. He was born under that. Galatians, I think the fourth chapter tells us that. If you want to turn there for your first verse. Galatians, fourth chapter, verse four. But when a fullness of time was come, when that's when God saw that time was full. God sent forth His Son made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. He was made under the law, and guess what? He kept the law perfectly for you and I. How could he do it? The only reason he could do it is that he did not have the sin nature that we have, being born of a virgin and no earthly father, and that with his divine nature to uphold his human nature, he had no intentions of sinning. He had no inclination to sin. In fact, he couldn't sin because God hates sin. Now, because he kept the law perfectly, he earned what the law said you could earn if you kept it perfectly, eternal life. Now, nobody else has ever done this, and the law is still in effect to every individual. You keep the law perfectly, and you'll earn eternal life. But only the Lord Jesus Christ could do it. And because he's God, he can give that eternal life to anyone that the Father gave him. To everyone rather everyone the father gave to him to die for he's given them eternal life okay that's why it's so important to know about your soul that our lord has purchased it he has redeemed your soul and why I say your soul because I'm figuring that because you have an interest in your own soul in an eternity that you'll come to Christ. You can't sit back and think, Well, maybe it's not for me. Maybe there's no maybes about it. You come to Christ according to his word. He says, Anyone that hungers and thirst come to me. If you come to me, I'll in no wise cast out. So just go to him. Don't hesitate. Don't think, uh, this. don't include me. There's no mercy left and all those kind of things that awakened sinners think about. I often had thought before the Lord saved me, he, he certainly must have run out of mercy. So many other people need it and, and he's given it to so many, there isn't any left for me. Well, Satan gives you all kinds of those weird thoughts. Lord's got mercy that's stacked from here to heaven plenty of mercy for everybody. Plenteous in mercy. Delights in mercy. And any sinner that cries unto him for mercy, he gives it to them. But you know what? He also gives them the cry. Because they will not cry on their own. The human nature hates God, hates His holiness, hates His mercy, hates anything about Him. They want to do it themselves. It don't work that way. I'm going to read you a little something about this verse from an old Puritan writer in the 1700s. And we're going to get off of this verse 26. Now, most of you I've sent it to in the mail with your last tapes. I've given it to everybody in here, but maybe it'll sound different if I read it. The scripture is, What is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? How little attention does this infinitely important subject gain in the world? How few consider the salvation of their souls as the great business of life. You, who are hearing these lines, did you ever lay it to heart? And are you acting accordingly? If this is your case, the following language will express your heartfelt convictions. I have a soul as well as a body. And my soul must live forever in happiness or in misery. It is capable of inconceivably greater pain and pleasure than my body is. It is matter of comparatively little importance whether I am abject poverty or in the greatest affluence during the few years I am to continue in this present world. That means whether you're rich or poor doesn't make any difference. And whether I am respected or despised by my fellow mortals, or whether my body is sickly or healthy, full of pain or at ease, these are matters of small consequence. Death is certain and near. Ashes to ashes and dust to dust must soon be pronounced over my lifeless body. In a dying moment, if I could call the whole world my own, what good would it do to me? What comfort could it afford me? For whether my soul is to be eternally happy or miserable, the companion of angels and saints made perfect around the throne of God, or doomed to weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth with devils and damned spirits in hell, where the worm never dieth and where the fire never shall be quenched. This is is the most momentous inquiry I ought to make. To escape from the wrath to come and to secure an inheritance among the saints in light ought to be my greatest concern. But how many people do you know who are concerned? How many? Even of our loved ones, our relatives, is it of any concern, much less their greatest concern, Which world is most in my thoughts? This one or the next? And which am I most anxious about? Am I not often inquiring? What shall I eat? What shall I drink? Wherewithal shall I be clothed? But when did I seriously inquire? What must I do to be saved? If I have no prevailing concern about my soul... I may be certain that my state is bad and my danger is extreme. Anybody need a copy of that? Just call me or write me, I'll send you one. Let's go to verse 27. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and then He shall reward every man according to his works. I had intended to spend as much time on that verse as I did on 26. I see I can't do it. I think what we'll do is come back to that verse next week. Because the title on our tape for tonight is going to be Christ, Moses, and Elijah, and I've got to get down there. All right, verse 28. Verily I say unto you, there shall be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, what was he saying? Well, he said there are some of these disciples are going to see the Son of Man in glory, in the glory of his coming. Now, did they? Well, this is what happened. They did. Three of them, Peter, James, and John. Here it comes up. Verse 7, chapter 17. And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John and his, bro- his brother and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart. Now, that part might not sound interesting to you, but look at that six days. Look at that six days. What's it mean to you? Well, you see, in the Lord's creation, they had six days. That he created things, made things, and then he rested on the seventh. And if one day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years is a day, that means that this thing about being transfigured or our Lord coming in his glory is going to be after the six thousand years of human living. Now, we're almost there to the 6,000 years. It was 4,000 years up until Christ. It's almost 2,000 years since. I don't know how close it is to that. But after the six days, our Lord Jesus Christ comes back, and there's going to be the millennium, the 7,000th year, or 1,000 years, number seven coming up, however you want to think about it. And that's when we're going to be with our Lord in our glorious bodies. So that sixth is kind of important. After six days, after the time of the Gentiles is over, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John his brother and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart and was transfigured before them and his face did shine as the sun and his raiment was white as the light want to tell you a little something about that change, that transformation. It was just a little tiny bit of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, a normal human body, like Peter, James, and John, and you and I, in flesh and blood, cannot behold the glory of God. So it was very, very limited. Just enough to impress them that there is glory to come when we're able to behold the Lord Jesus Christ in our resurrected bodies. Because here comes a couple of guys who are perfectly able to communicate and talk with our Lord Jesus Christ, and they have resurrected bodies. Verse 2. And was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Moses and Elijah. Where did they come from? They came from heaven. How did they get there? The Lord took them. Elijah went up there in a the chariot. We know that. And the Lord uncovered Moses' body and took him because there's work for them to be done yet. Moses represents the law. Elijah's going to represent the church that's going to be raptured. The two together. Here were two human beings. Two God's elect who who were long gone history and they appear talking with our Lord Jesus Christ in front of three witnesses James Peter and John now our Lord's great prayer and cry to his Father is that he so loves the church that you and I as members so loves us that the greatest thing that he can do for us when we gather together with him is to let us gaze upon his glory I'm going to say I don't know how that can be fun you don't know Just to behold the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ would be enough to keep you satisfied for eternity. Turn to John 17, look at verse 24, to show you what I'm talking about. Show you what I'm talking about. He loves his people that the Father gave him. Now, our Lord doesn't love everybody. Everybody. The Lord Jesus Christ died for those that the Father gave him to die for. No more, no less. No joiners, no deletions. It's very secure in God's mind. Yours and mine totally baffled. Have no idea who God's going to save and who he isn't. Before we're saved, we wonder, wonder, wonder are we elect. After we're saved, it's so simple to look and see. The Lord drew us to himself. We're elect. Simple. John 17:24, Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, always says that. Isn't that something? Never let the Father forget that he gave him this precious gift. Our Lord loves the church that they be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Just to see the glory of our Lord Jesus. We like to see things. We like to see beautiful things. We like to see things out of the ordinary. In the wedding that we performed last night, we saw things out of the ordinary. Gorgeous, gorgeous rooms with mirror walls, mirror posts. It's like walking in. uh, uh, Years ago when we had the fairs and things, you go in a house of mirrors. You didn't know if you were going to walk into a room or walk into a mirror. Actually, last night it was a little confusing, but it was gorgeous. Chandeliers that are in rooms with mirrors, there's chandeliers everywhere. They're just delightful. We like to see things different again with that wedding. It was so gorgeous with the bride being brought to the wedding in a horse and the carriage that was so beautiful and then there were fireworks up behind the place when the service was finished they shot off great fireworks that went up into the sky and burst into beautiful colors and all of this we like to see things like that you know it it gains our attention but it'll wear off We'll soon forget it when we see something that gains our attention again. But to behold the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ will transfix you for eternity, if, if it had to last that long. But it won't. We will be in His presence and be able to behold His glory throughout eternity, over and over again to see the glory of our God-man substitute
1: Redeemer.
0: is that wonderful? And that's what he prays for, for the Father to have us to be where he is. Okay? Let's get back to Moses and Elijah. Now, are these guys ever going to show up again? Let me show you. It's in chapter 11 of Revelation. You see, it's part of a continuing story. The characters pop in. Here's our Lord about to be crucified. They come and talk to him about it. But Moses and Elijah are going to come again in a time called the Tribulation. And if we didn't have so many great facts about it, we'd be in the dark. And there's a lot of folks that no such thing as a tribulation. We're in the millennium now and all kind of garbage like that. 11th chapter of Revelation, verse 3 says, And I give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred threescore days how long is that that's three and a half years that's half the tribulation that's the second half that's the time when antichrist has then revealed himself and has control of the world it would be the very worst time for anybody to witness for the lord jesus christ and here come moses and elijah now where does it say moses it doesn't it doesn't say moses and elijah but let's read about these two witnesses and see These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. Where did that come from? Well, look at Zechariah 4, verse 11 and 14. Before we go any further, you see, everything is a part of the Scriptures. Zechariah 4, verse 11. Just don't pull these things out of the air. Then answered I and said unto him, What are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof? And I answered again and said unto him, What be these two olive branches which empty the two golden pipes, which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves? And he answered me and said, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then said he, These are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. These are the two witnesses. See how it mentions that these are the two olive trees, the two candlesticks? takes you right back to Zechariah. Now look at verse 5. If any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must be in this manner killed They are like dragons. These have power to shut heaven, that that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. And have power over waters to turn them to blood. Now listen, who prayed and it didn't rain? That was Elijah. That was in the days of Ahab. Three and a half years it did not rain. Because he prayed, to the Lord, shut it up. And then who had the power of the waters to turn them into blood? Moses did over there in Egypt. To smite the earth with all plagues. Who did that? Moses did. Ten plagues in Egypt emptied them out brought that nation to poverty. The most powerful nation on earth at the time brought to their knees to poverty. Look at verse 7. When they shall have finished their testimony. How long are they going to do that? Three and a half years. Right to the end of the tribulation. The beast that senteth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, shall overcome them and kill them. Finally. When their days are finished, according to the Lord, finishing them. You see, when they shall have finished their testimony. When the last person gets saved in the tribulation, just like we're waiting for the last person to be saved now before the tribulation. Dispensations, yes. But not the way a lot of men make them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. Okay, if I was to ask you a question, what are we talking about? What great cities call Sodom and Egypt? I don't know. I never read that in the scripture. You're reading it now. That's where our Lord was crucified, it says. Verse 8. Where also our Lord was crucified. That means he's calling Jerusalem, Sodom and Egypt. The filth and the world, and the filth and the world go together. And they of the people, kindreds and tongues and nations, shall see their dead bodies three and a half, three days and a half. Well, you know, when this was written, there was no such thing as a satellite or a TV or a VCR or a jet plane. But it don't go wrong, does it? Uh Uh-uh. Just give the Bible enough time. Everybody in the world, it says here, is going to see their dead bodies three and a half days only. And they shall not let their bodies be buried or suffer their bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make marriage and send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelled on the earth. You see, during the tribulation, there aren't going to be an awful lot of believers. They're going to be hell-bound, hell-raising sinners who don't like what these two guys are going to say. So they're going to blame all the tribulation on them. These are the two that tormented them. But after three days and a half the spirit of life from God entered into them. Their heads popped back on their bodies. What happened? They stood on their feet and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. That's when the tribulation saints are going to be raptured. That's when the bride is completed, I believe. Now, how you separate the tribulation saints from the saints in this age? I'm really not sure. I think they all belong to the same resurrection. That's the first resurrection. When they're totally finished before the millennium. Okay? There's going to be a rapture during the tribulation period. Has to be God's people that's before the Lord can come back with His saints. They're saints. They're going to be saints, just like you and I are called saints, even though you and I wouldn't, wouldn't get a certificate and hang that on a wall and say, I'm a saint. We're saints in God's eyes because we're perfect in the Lord Jesus Christ, not because of anything that we have ever said or done or could do. We are sinners by nature, sinners by practice, and we'll be sinners to the day we die. But we've got a substitute Redeemer who's paid for our sins. And we don't like to sin. We hate our sin. We hate ourselves because we sin. But because we're sinners, we still sin. And there's a way out with that, too. Over in First John, it says, If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. The Lord Jesus Christ, our go-between, okay? Well, I just wanted you to know about Moses and Elijah. They've got a work to do yet. They're going to die. Moses died once. He was resurrected. Elijah never did die. He's going to. Kind of interesting, huh? All right, now, when we look at verse 4, Matthew 17, we got Peter making his own great decision. He loves the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't ever mistake that. That's why he says what he says according to his human heart. A heart that has not yet been indwelt by God's Holy Spirit And it's before the resurrection of Christ. So he's really very, very human. And it's his human emotions that says, Lord, let's build a couple houses here. In fact, we'll build three of them. Three little houses up here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. It's such a wonderful thing to see you three fellas. Imagine. Imagine. Moses and Elijah, the great prophets of the Jewish religion. Peter, James, and John able to stand there and look at them, listen to them. Let's keep them here forever. Lord, we don't want you to go anywhere either. You just stay here with them. No, it's not a very good idea, Peter. Verse 5, while he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. So again, up until this point, just before the crucifixion, our Lord Jesus Christ pleased the Father. He's delighted in him. Why? He never has sinned. Still no sin. It's a short time to go now to the crucifixion. Well, this voice out of heaven really registered with Peter. Now, when Peter reminisces and goes back to that time when Moses and Elijah met with the Lord Jesus Christ, in his mind, or uppermost in his mind, he's not thinking Moses and Elijah... He's not thinking the Lord Jesus Christ being transfigured in his face, shining like the sun in his raiment, white as could be. He's not thinking that. He's impressed with this voice, the voice of God that speaks to his heart. This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Why don't you look at it? Look at Second Peter 1.17. See, they got that little note down in our Bibles, and it's a good one. It's a good one. Sometimes they have a good one in here. Most of the time, the words they have under a verse aren't too good, and sometimes the Scriptures aren't too good. But this is a good one. We start with verse 16, though. Peter says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables, when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Now, he's saying this is how the Lord's going to come. And this is the power that he has to bring those resurrected with him. It says, For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which we heard came, and this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the Holy Mount. But come on, Peter, you're missing a good opportunity to tell us about Moses and Elijah. You're missing a good opportunity to tell us about the Lord being transfigured. No, he's not missing any opportunity of anything. He's telling you about what impressed him. This voice, which we heard when we were with him in the Holy Mount, said, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Moses and Elijah don't even get a mention. The Lord Jesus Christ has the preeminence over all saints, resurrected or not, okay? Verse 6 in Matthew, And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face, and they were sore afraid. I guess they would be. The voice was terrifying in a way, and yet it was also uplifting. It honored the Lord Jesus Christ, to put man in the dust. And when they lifted up their eyes, it was gone. Moses and Elijah left. They saw no man save Jesus only. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead and they don't talk about it. Where did Moses and Elijah go? Did they walk down the mountain? Did they walk around the mountain? No, they couldn't just do things like that. They just flat went back to heaven. How long does it take them? I don't know. But they came from heaven, and it didn't take them a light year. And they've measured stars out there that are millions of light years away from earth, and we're getting their light. Millions of light years. Moses and Elijah just made that trip. Boom, nothing flat. Down from heaven back up to heaven. And one day, you and I are going to make that trip down from heaven all that distance when we come back with the Lord Jesus Christ. You know who talks about that? That's in the Old Testament. Zechariah fourteen five. Zechariah, way near the end of the Old Testament, just before Malachi, 14.5. The very last two sentences in that verse. And the Lord my God shall come and all the saints with thee come down from heaven. Well, maybe that's not clear enough. Turn over to Revelation 20. Revelation 20. We're going to close. Not exactly 20. Revelation 19. Revelation 19, verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called, faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Go down to verse 14. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Where do they come from? Heaven. The Lord calls us home, and he will, either in death or in change. We will go to heaven, and we will come back with him from heaven. Teachings of God's word. Phenomenal? Yeah. Encouraging? Wonderfully encouraging. Interesting? Well, I tell you what. That trip coming down from heaven is going to be...